today's guest is Shaheen Shan, and he is an amazing man. He's done some amazing things, and I think you're going to find some powerful insights from him on this episode. So let me dive into his profile real quick before we start the interview. So Shaheen is a born in Iran. He is an award-winning entrepreneur, writer, and filmmaker currently based in Los Angeles, California. Where else would you be if you're doing those types of things? He is the CEO and chairman of Accelerated Intelligence. And through this business, it is an Amazon marketing and advertising agency where he manages the selling of his own products and help other brand owners to scale their online sales, not just in Amazon, but in other marketplaces like eBay, Shopify, and Walmart. He shares his passion for Amazon through his Amazon's course, Amazon Mastery. So I'm very excited to have Shaheen Sean here with me today and to dive into the wisdom and insight of how he became a billionaire and where he's taking that experience and how he's helping thousands and thousands of other people to find amazing success in their lives and their business. So welcome. All right, everybody, welcome again to another episode of the Sage Mindset Podcast, and I'm very excited for today's guest. So I want to just jump in and go for it. So if you could, Shaheen, tell me about what got you started. What was the original inspiration to get you to where you are today? To where I am today is an interesting journey. I started when I was 15 years old, left home at the age of just about 15. And I had no friends, no family, just cut off all ties with the world and kind of went out there seeking my fame and fortune. I was looking around me, you know, I, I grew up in a affluent part of Los Angeles in the little suburb here in Los Angeles called Pacific Palisades. My parents bought a house in the 1980s before the place blew up and became, you know, celebrities and millionaires and billionaires. And we just saw the place going up you know, just all around us. And we were this lower class, poor Iranian family from Iran. I looked around me and I saw wealth. I saw success, but I didn't see a clear path to it. And my decision was to leave and try to figure out how the fuck do people do it? You know, I asked my folks and I said, Hey, how, how do you do that? I want the, you know, I want the Porsche and the blonde and the, you know, big fat house and, and the yacht and all that stuff. And they said, well, son, you know, you have to be a doctor like Mr. Efseni. And I was like, fuck, man. And I looked at that guy. I was like, that dude's old. He's fat. He's bald. And, you know, he leaves the house at 5 a.m. in the morning and comes back at 8 p.m. He doesn't own his time. I don't want to be like that dude. I took so this off. is all at, this is all at uh, 15 you said 15 yeah yeah keep going but just I'm just trying to picture you know 15 year olds don't usually think this way so it's it's a beautiful thing that you were already thinking that way and and traveling down that path in your mind's eye even at 15 I had help I had books I realized somewhere along the way probably getting my ass kicked during the whole Iran Contra affair being an Iranian in Los Angeles and not speaking any English I realized that there were these things called books and personal development and business books written just after the turn of the century in the post-industrial era by these old-timey dudes like Napoleon Hill and biographies of, of men like Andrew Carnegie and Henry Ford and 
books by people like Augmandino and, and W. Clement Stone, and you could read these books and get all this knowledge from these old-timey dudes that would be like, anything the mind of a man can think and conceive, he can achieve. And I would, I would get the cassettes. I would go to the library, and I would listen to the cassettes. They had Walkmans there where you could go borrow a Walkman. They wouldn't let you take the tapes home, but you could put the tapes in the Walkman, and I'd be sitting there listening to it and reading it, and I thought, fuck, man, these old-timey dudes can do it. Maybe I can fucking do it. So I just bailed. I, I believed that. That was a story I told myself. And I had no idea what to do. I was sleeping in the back of an abandoned Lincoln Continental that drove for a minute and then abandoned me on the side of the freeway. So I was sleeping in the trunk. I had the pages of Think and Grow Rich pasted on the, on the back of the trunk. I survived eating ketchup and relish from hot dog stands. Oh, man. I found a mentor. I went to a local community college. I found a guy who was really exceptional. I write about it in my book, Billion. And he mentored me. He said, hey, you seem to be interested in this underground EDM scene, underground electronic dance music scene. And it was called the rave scene at the time. So go check it out. Find out what the business is there. And so I would go to the raves and I realized that, hey, man, this is great. They start late at night, like 12, 1 in the morning, and they go till 5, 6 in the morning. I usually find a back room or sleep behind a speaker, and it was glorious. I'd go there, meet some people, hang out for a little bit. Nobody ever goes behind the speakers. I would just bring a sleeping bag, crash behind the speakers, wake up in the morning, and go about my day. As it turns out, I decided that I wanted to learn how money is made in these businesses and the business of raves. So I started taking a look a little bit deeper at the rave scene at the time, at the party scene. And I thought to myself, well, it's got to be the promoter. So I tried throwing a couple raves and I started looking around a little bit more. And I was like, no, these guys are always running. They're running from the DJs. They're running from everybody else because they never have any money. So it must be the DJs. I thought, Kyle, I thought to myself, hey, man, it's got to be the DJs, right? Music, musicians, they make money. Rock stars make money, right? Nope. Rock stars make money. DJs, broke-ass motherfuckers. You always see them outside with their hands stretched out wondering why nobody's paying them because nobody values somebody playing other people's music, or at least that was the mentality in those days. So they were, they were always left to dry because the, the promoters would say, hey, we'll pay you after the party. And after the party, the promoters would make a beeline because they'd be broke anyway. So I thought, well, who's doing it? Is it the warehouses? Nope. Turns out the places the parties were being held were mostly borrowed, if you know what I mean. A break of a padlock here, a little window slip there. People would get in through the back door. They would climb the power poles and take the power. Most of these didn't have power or plumbing. They'd figure out a way to make that happen and a party would ensue. Well, who do you think it was who was keeping these things alive and making the parties happen? No idea. Promoters of some sort, I guess. I'm not sure. Incorrect, my friend, but it was a good guess. It was, in fact, the drug dealers, the uh -huh. people selling a very yeah. specific drug. And that drug was ecstasy, MDMA, right. methyl dioxy, methamphetamine, molly. But here's the thing. The supply of ecstasy had dried up. The U.S. had created these heavy embargoes on any kind of illicit substances going out of the country. There wasn't really anybody here who knew how to make it, not really, because it's a fairly complicated drug to synthesize, unlike other drugs that you could just grow or somehow figure out how to extract. This was much more complicated. You couldn't cook it up in a kitchen. And the drug dealers were sad 
The people at the parties were really disappointed because most of what they were buying was not ecstasy. So I watched for a while and I observed the flow of product in and out of the clubs. I observed how the drug dealers were the most wealthy people out there. And I thought to myself, hey man, if I could do that, I could finally get that Porsche and the beautiful girl next to me in the big house and I could do it pretty quick. But then I looked back at my life as a child and I realized that I was a really bad criminal, really bad at crime. Like <laughs> crime was not my thing. Every time I would do crime as a child, I would get busted. And I was self-realized enough to know that crime was a bad move. It was not going to get me where I wanted to go, at least not for me. I was way too neurotic, you know, Jewish family completely. Everybody in my family was neurotic. It runs in our blood and crime was not going to be the choice I should make. So let me, let me interrupt your story for a second. So what was the first crime you tried to commit or that you failed at? Yeah. So when I was in my adolescence, early adolescence, me and a couple kids, and you know, again, I, I write about it in my book, Billion, that's coming out in the next week, Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pope Cult. Anybody who wants to, the first chapter is on Spotify or Google Podcasts. You guys can get it for free. But I started a small business where I had a, a buddy who was, who was short. You know, I don't know what the political correct word for it is, but a short person, or you're not supposed to say midget yeah, anymore, right? Okay. Okay. So we're not going to say midget, but he was a short human being. And he managed to get under the sensors at the liquor store. So I would keep watch and I'd start a conversation with the guy at the register and he would walk in and he would grab the nudie magazines, a little bit of glue, a little bit of the, the liquor. He'd pack it all into his pants or his jacket or whatever he had. And he would kind of like dance out the door and I'd go buy a pack of gum or something. And then we'd go out and we did that. And we created quite a big cache of stuff and we started selling it at school. We got busted all the time, every time. Bad at crime, bad at crime by yeah, just doing yeah. stupid stuff stupid stuff. We would write down our crimes. We had a ledger. It's a bad idea, guys. If you ever want to do crime, don't write down your crimes. It's a bad idea. But we learned those lessons. And, yep. and, la and later on, subsequently, I learned not to get involved in crime. So back to our story, I thought to myself, what if there's a way where I could make this stuff without drugs? I could make it legally using herbs, that I could produce in, at, at, you know, in a kitchen or you know, anywhere, somewhere, somewhere basic, that would have no legal penalties, would have no negative side effects, and would still give people the good effect. I could make a, a, a killing on that. And so I went about that process, and I did it. I had a girlfriend at the time, managed to get myself a girlfriend, even though I was dead broke. And she, you know, when her dad was out, we'd be making the stuff up in her kitchen. I'd be making it up in the bathtub. And we'd be putting the stuff together. And I remember I got a bunch of these. I didn't have enough money to buy a machine to encapsulate the herbs. So what I did was I managed to make them into these little goo-filled balls that looked kind of like pills. <laughs> and I walked into the club with this baggie of these like black gooey pills. And, and we had tried it at home, by the way, and it worked gloriously. It was fantastic. It made you a little nauseous because you had to take so many of them and there was no coating to the capsule. So you tasted the herbs, but it worked. And I walked into the club. I gathered all of my courage. I walked up to the biggest 
first drug dealer I saw. And I said, buddy, sell this stuff. And he said, fuck off, kid. And I looked at him again and I said, okay, this, this is your breaking point, Shaheen. This is either the time where you're going to pack your shit up and go home or you're going to make the shit work. And so the guy kept staring at me. He's like, I told you to fuck off. Why are you not moving? I said, because you're going to sell my pills. And he said, what? And I said, look, let me tell you why. And he goes, okay, I'm listening. I said, A, you're going to go to jail. So what, are you a cop? I said, no, not a cop. Do I look like a cop? He goes, no, you look too shitty to be a cop. I said, you're right. I said, you're going to sell my pills because A, you're going to make a lot of money. You're going to make all these customers happy. You have nothing better to do. I know you're out because people have been complaining that you've been out for days, weeks, months. And if you don't like it, come back and kick my ass and don't pay me. Pretty good deal. He, just looked, he, looked, he looked at me and then just in that moment, you know, a couple, you know, party people came to him and he was like, well, it's either sell him nothing, give him an excuse or sell him my pills. And he goes, okay, sure. So he sells it to him. I come back about an hour later, everybody's dancing at people are pointing at me, people are pointing at him, people are jumping up and down. And he walks up to me, looks me deadpan in the face and goes, hey, kid, I'm like, okay, this is it. I'm getting my ass kicked. Like, we're done. And he goes, how soon can you get me more? And that was it. That was the breaking point. It went from one guy to 10 guys, to 100 guys, to 1,000 guys, to 10,000 guys all over the world. We became a huge phenomena. And I got it in using this untraditional form of distribution. I took the drug dealers and I legitimized them. Mm -hmm. I gave them a legitimate product. And a lot of them went up and opened franchise stores for us. We had ecstasy stores all over the world. We mm -hmm. had, you know, they opened up other kinds of stores. Like one guy would open up a clothing store, but everybody knew he'd really be making his money selling our pills. They became distributors. They started distributing to clubs. And then we got into mainstream. We started selling at Urban Outfitters. We sold at GNC, General Nutrition Center. We sold in all the big stores, 7-Eleven, everywhere where you can imagine, carried herbal ecstasy. Until one day I realized, you know, we were selling in over 30,000 doors. I had employed over 200 people. All of Venice Beach, Venice Circle was employed by me. Like anybody you saw walking around would have these t-shirts with this glow-in-the-dark butterfly on it that said ecstasy. Everybody was employed by me. If I saw you on the street and you could fog up a mirror, I would hire you. <laughs> there were, we, I, could, I could not hire enough people to handle the volume of this stuff. I was making it for 25 cents. I was selling it for $20, mostly cash business, mostly direct through us. Now, it comes down to one day where I walk into my office and I wake up, kind of, you know, stumble into the office. I, I usually didn't sleep much in those days, two, maybe three hours. I was so busy working. I'd fall asleep in a warehouse or a factory floor would be the norm. And I stumbled into the office and the news had broke and nobody had told me that we had made a billion dollars. We had broken the billion dollar mark. Wow. Now, Kyle. This was before the internet. This was before phones, mobile phones, you know, smartphones, really. This was before Facebook, social media, being able to buy get Google AdWords, doing any of that stuff. None of that stuff was a thing back then. Might, some of them might have existed, but nobody was really using it. We still had fax machines. And I remember having a fucking panic attack. I was thinking to myself, holy fucking shit. 
I don't know how much a billion dollars is. I'm going to go on Sam Donaldson Nightline tonight in two hours. And I don't know how, they're just going to ask me how much a billion dollars is. I don't know how much a fucking billion dollars is. And I couldn't Google it. That was my worry. And they calmed me down and they said, hey, you know, Shaheen, no one's going to ask you that. MTV's outside. They want to interview you. If they, they just want to talk to the long-haired kid who's made the billion-dollar company. And from there, Kyle, it became a wild ride. So when, when did this, did you begin all this at 15? Is that, is that when right. all this began? That's yeah. Right. Do, are you still part of that? At this point, or do you still have you sold that company? Are you still part of it? So a few years back, I managed to recapture the brand. The brand was bought and sold several times over. And I, with some very good attorneys, managed to capture the brand back. So we do own the brand now. But um, I started many companies after that. So I started uh, basically what became all the vape technology that you see now. I invented the first digital vaporizer. We, we built all the technology after that. That was the first vaporizer company to go public was mine. And then after that, I moved on to doing what I'm doing now, which is selling on Amazon, becoming an Amazon mastery seller, and also teaching people how to create Amazon businesses. So sometime around 2009, we were, this was back in the day where you could email Jeff Bezos and get him to respond to your email, <laughs> jeff at amazon.com. I'm hoping I don't get into trouble for giving that email, but he stepped down. So I'm sure someone else is answering those emails now. And we got notice that he's going to open up the platform to third-party sellers, meaning anybody like me and you, to sell anything we want to on there. We could sell guitars, we could sell plants, whatever. And I was like, fucking awesome. I came up with another pill that I was selling at that time, which was a, a brain pill called Accelerol. It was pretty cool. It's like the limitless pill from that movie. And I thought, all right, well, I didn't think much of it. I was like, let me give this Amazon thing a try. I put it up on the Amazon platform, went to sleep, woke up the next day, $100 supplement, $120 supplement. We had thousands of orders. Right. And I was like, holy shit. And I stopped everything I was doing. And I thought to myself, this is it. This is the, this Amazon thing. Bez, I, I, I read up a little bit more on Bezos. I sent him a few emails. I realized this guy is no dummy. We're putting all our bets on Amazon. And that's what we've done these last few years is that I focused on the Amazon platform. We've created many multi-million dollar companies and we've been training people on how to start these businesses on Amazon that they could sell a few years later for five, 10 times what they put into it. So when you think about this new phase in your in your entrepreneurial journey, what what is kind of the 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 heart behind it, or what what is the bigger picture of what you're trying to do uh, through through this? So the heart behind what I do, and I'll preface it by letting you know that in in my life I've created billions of dollars with a B in revenue. I've lost millions of dollars, maybe hundreds of million dollars in revenue. And it's just part of the journey. I'm at a place in my life now where I'm comfortable, you know, travel the world with my family. I've got a beautiful wife and a, a great kid. And we love to travel. We go all over the place. We collect uh, exotic cars. We collect classic cars. We love doing that kind of stuff. And while we do it, we're creating income because the Amazon business is always paying us. And I realized a little while ago 
that my goal, my main focus for the next five to 10 years is going to be to empower as many people as I can to do the same thing, to create these recurring streams of revenue so they don't have to sell their hours. Most people are selling their hours. They're not thinking foundational. And that's what I like to teach. I teach people, hey man, you need to have a four-legged table. A four-legged table is stronger than a three-legged one. A two-legged table sucks. A one-legged table, you're dealing with a tripod. So one leg needs to be your career. Whatever is putting food on the table for you and your family. And that could be a temporary thing until you get the other ends up and going, but you need to have something that offers you the stability so you don't have to worry about the other stuff. The second level, or I should say the second leg foundation is really going to be cash flow positive real estate. There's more wealth created in this country by real estate than mostly any other thing. Having some cash flow positive real estate in your portfolio is going to be something that you need to do in a very important foundation to get yourself to a point where you are climbing the real estate ladder, not just owning your house, but owning property that is going to be returning predictable, recurring revenue to you again, while you're not selling your hours. The third pillar should be cash flow dividend investments in the market. Now that could be something in crypto, something in the market, something in the S&P. There's lots of guys smarter than me that have written books on that, but something that's compounding interest. That's why Warren Buffett is one of the wealthiest men in the world because of compounding. He's been investing for so long in the markets. And the fourth leg that you need to have is going to be an e-commerce business. E-commerce is the new internet real estate. It is the new thing that's going to be offering you that thing that's worth more than money, which is time. And the most effective way to do that is by building an Amazon business. I really don't know of many other ways. I mean, I know that a lot of my students take what we teach on the Amazon platform and they use it for Etsy, for Shopify, for eBay, for Walmart. But to start an Amazon company today will cost you next to nothing, maybe a couple hundred bucks and bits and bobs here and there, but you can start an Amazon company, get your company going by tomorrow, selling on Amazon and create this kind of legacy wealth. And when you have these foundations of making money, nothing ever shakes you. You never wake up having a bad day. Oh, I lost my job. Oh, the market's down. Oh, real estate's in the shitter. None of that stuff phases you because you are diversified and you are diversified in the best of ways. Yeah, hundred percent. I think there's there's a lot of fear for people when you when you bring up these things because there's a lot of risk involved with the only one that doesn't really have a lot of risk in it is the career piece, but the other ones you could perceive as having a lot of risk. What what do you say to people that hear of these legs and they have resistance because there's fear to your approach and your suggestions here? Yeah, no risk, no glory. This is what I think. In life, the amount of success you have is going to be proportional to the amount of risk that you take. There's a great guy, Nassim Taleb. He wrote a book called Anti-Fragile. He wrote another book called Black Swan. Strongly recommend checking them out. And he talks about how 
The guy that walks into a job and picks up a paycheck might be getting five, 600, 700 bucks a week for flipping burgers or doing whatever he does. And he has 99% security. He knows he'll come in next week, he'll get a paycheck. The most he'll ever be out if the restaurant burns down is a week of pay or two weeks of pay if he's getting paid that way. The guy that owns the restaurant might not make money for two years, might go bankrupt and lose everything, but he could also make a huge amount of profit, have the business bought out by a big burger chain and become a millionaire. It's the amount of risk that you take that enables you to realize that level of success. Now, with that said, most people misconstrue what I say. Most people think risk is throwing your chips on a roulette table and thinking, I hope it lands on my number. That is not risk. We talk about intelligent risk. You have to be smart. You have to take calculated risks. A friend of mine, Wayne Boss, who's this amazing CEO, multimillionaire, who takes troubled companies and turns them into gold mines and flips them for many hundreds of millions of dollars, teaches us that there are three things you need to have knowledge, courage, and action. And I, I write about this again in my book for anybody who's interested. Knowledge, you can buy, you can borrow, you can steal, you can rent, but you need that. That is the reason why you don't have confidence to take the risk. Courage, that comes from having knowledge. If you know that you're going to succeed or that eventually you will succeed or the probability of you succeeding is high based on information that you have that's credible, making smart decisions, making, taking smart risks, now you're taking an intelligent risk. Warren Buffett takes risks all the time. His whole life is about risk. Yeah. Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, these guys are big players and they've succeeded big because they've risked big. Elon Musk took all his PayPal money and he put it into Tesla. That was his entire net worth because he was willing to bet the farm. Now, did he put his chips on 33 red and 23 green and hope it landed? No. He went out there and he was like, this nail is going through this piece of wood. I don't give a fuck how this nail is going through this piece of wood. It may take a jackhammer. I might use a pneumatic gun. I might hit it with a rock. I might hit it with my head. This nail is going through this piece of wood, ladies and gentlemen. And that was the attitude that he took. Similarly with me, not that I'm anywhere near those guys level, maybe at their level of mindset, but certainly not in wealth, was that I burned my ships. I said, hey, I'm 15 years old. It's probably not the most secure decision for me to leave home at the moment, but that's what I needed at that time. I, I don't recommend that for anybody else unless they feel so inclined to do that or driven to do that. But for me, that was it. I was burning my ships because that's what I needed in that moment. And to take that risk to realize the upside. So there, there, there is no upside without risk, but you can take that risk intelligently. Yeah. And I think that underneath all that is you bet on yourself. You, you chose to bet on yourself and trusted that and trusted that that would bring ultimate success for you. And it did, but it also brought, like you said, there was failures. You've lost hundreds, hundreds of millions, but that's part of the guess, not the guess. That's part of the risk work that turns into the opportunities that you have now and the opportunities that you've had in the past. Yeah. How, how you, go ahead. No, because you, you know, that's, that's a really good point, Kyle, because you have to bet on yourself. It's funny. You know, I've got a, do you have kids? I do. Yeah. 
Yeah. How old are your kids? We got, let's see, four, seven, and nine. Oh, amazing. Okay. Yeah. yeah I've got a seven-year-old. Oh, cool. And it's funny. I, I tell him something every day when he leaves and he goes to school. I say, you know what, buddy? To me and your mom, you're the most special guy in the world. And we love you. And you're the most special kid. Everybody else thinks you're a fucking asshole. Maybe I don't, I don't use those exact words, but just, just so he realizes that that's the way the world operates. Mm -hmm. the, the, the most melodic song to anybody's ears is their own name. People generally only care about themselves and what you can do for them. Yep. So you have to, it's game theory. You have to bet on yourself. If you don't bet on yourself, you think anybody else will? If you don't take those risks and start an Amazon business, you know, get buy buy a piece of property that you can rent out, invest a little bit in the markets, do those kinds of things. Nobody else is going to believe you. Nobody else is gonna is gonna follow you. Nobody else is going to invest and bet in you. But when you start taking those risks, you start investing in yourself. People will flock to you. You build this magnetism that draws people to you because they're like, holy shit, this guy's got balls. Look at what he's doing. All right, let me go hang out with him so I can be like him. Yeah. And it's, it's a, sometimes it's really simple things that you can do to start moving in that direction. And then eventually you start to build momentum because sometimes you can, it sounds like to me when you first started, you didn't know exactly what the heck you're going to do. You were just fussing around trying to figure it out or out. And then, and then you stumbled into this and had the foresight and did the research and figured out that this, this herbal drug was, was the ticket. And then as continued on from there, but you had to take that, that step of mom, dad, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to, I don't know what this is going to look like, but I'm out of here. And that's a really powerful one for, for other people. I guess it's kind of a metaphor. What, what do they need to step away from that's holding them back? What are they holding on to that's preventing them from taking the risks that need, they need to take to get to the next step that they're supposed to go to? Because there's so many people that they have these silly, the silliest, the stupidest things that are holding them back from moving forward, including myself. I'm, I'm there too. You know, there's little things that hold me back from taking the risks that I think are the ones that I should be taking. So did yeah. you, did you have a, a moment where you went, I need to leave. I need to be done. What, what was that moment like for you? And did you ever look back after you had that moment of burning the ships? I never looked back. And there was the moment that I mentioned earlier on in this conversation. It was the moment when I left home and, you know, I was in a crappy 1965 Lincoln Continental and the car broke down in the middle of the road. And I was like, well, I guess this is where I'm going to be sleeping. My plan was to go east. I was going to go east in this car. Somehow had this dream of, you know, finding dreams further away. The car didn't get but a few miles from my house. And I ended up living in that car for a period of time. But yeah. I knew that it was temporary. I knew that it was me being broke and not being poor, two different mindsets. Mm, that's powerful right there. And there was clear conviction there too, that I'm going to make this work. Yes, this is not the ideal right now, but I'm going to make this work. And there's so many times where it's easy for us to look back and, and look back at what what was maybe easier and, and you didn't, you, you chose, you had, you set your mind. It sounds like to, to never look back again to what was and to be always looking forward. That's yeah. Yeah. You can't look backwards and forwards at the same time. 
<laughs> and when you're so focused, you know, I, I oftentimes make uh, analogy to those things they put on horses mm -hmm. to, to run the races so they don't get distracted. You got to have blinders on in life. You got to focus on the one thing that's going to take you to where you want to go in that moment. And then you could branch out and think about other stuff, but it's having that laser focus. There's, there's another great book called Black Hole Focus, where the writer, I believe he's an academic, he talks about having this singular point where you are all systems go on whatever it is that you're trying to achieve. And by doing that, you become indestructible. Because it doesn't matter, you know, and it's funny, Kyle, because now when I train people on creating Amazon businesses and selling on Amazon, I oftentimes will see people come in and I will know in an instant if they're going to be able to make it on Amazon or not. And the difference is the people who come at it from the perspective of, I'm going to get that nail through that piece of wood, no matter what it takes, are the ones who make it. Everybody else won't make it. And it's that stick to that grit to, I'm here to make this work. And I might not succeed today. I might not succeed tomorrow, but eventually I'm going to make it. And everybody else is going to fail. Everybody else is going to fall away, but I will be standing. You will not defeat me. Yeah, that's, those, that's those people. Yeah, those people are the ones who make it. So listeners, as you're listening to Shaheen, I want to challenge you to think about what is that for you? What is that specific thing that you're going to continue pounding that nail until it gets through? Because I know you have something. So go after it, continue going after it because it's, it's worth it. And even if there's a lot of risk to it, I know for me, it's turned into this sage thing that I'm pursuing, not the podcast necessarily, it's a piece of it, but this bigger picture of what sage is going to be. I have to continue pounding on that nail until it gets through. And then there's something else afterward. There's another nail that you may need to pound through again. You weren't done after you did the, that first set of herbs. You came up with another set and then now you're doing this Amazon thing. So you continued to pound the nails through. And I find it interesting because the metaphor that I use in, in Sage is that accountability is the nails that holds leadership together. And so very similarly in what we're talking about here is you have to continue to hammer those nails to hold together what it is that you're trying to achieve. So, so I love that you have a similar metaphor to what I'm talking about here. So I love that. I love that. And I'll, I'll, I'll go a little further with you on that. Actually, if we can do, you, you want to explore that point just a little bit. So this is an interesting point because I think people will lie to you. Everybody wants to approach communication with as little friction as possible. And right now, if you're listening to this, the truth is, and very few people will tell you this, you might suck. <laughs> you might be an absolute fucking abject failure at what you are trying to do. Your thing that you think is so special might be so fucking bad that that's the reason why, why you are failing. And that's okay. It doesn't matter. Now, I don't believe that everybody's going to make it. Not everybody's going to make it. If they did, it wouldn't be called success. Then you just look around and everybody would have a fucking gold trophy or a gold medal or whatever. It doesn't, life doesn't fucking work that way. The world has shifted to where they tell people that lie. And, you know, in uh, my, my, one of the authors that I'm a big fan of, this guy, Scott Adams, who wrote the book Dilbert or the uh, comic book Dilbert. 
he's an artist of Dilbert and he wrote a bunch of books. One is like uh, how to fail at almost everything and still succeed. And he wrote mm-hmm. another book called Win Bigly. He talks about how wealthy people will tell you when they ask him, so dude, how'd you make your money? They'll tell you it's passion. And it's, I, I mentor a lot of young people. One of my young guys who I've been mentoring for a bunch of years. He just raised 5 million bucks, started a startup from Silicon Valley, raised another 2 million bucks for another company. He's doing great. But when asked, when you ask wealthy people, they'll just tell you, you know what? It's passion. Why do they say that? Because it's not correct for them to say, because I'm just a little bit fucking smarter than you, or I'm better than you in these ways. You will never be as good as I am at rocket engineering. Someone like Elon Musk. If he says that, he'll sound like an asshole. If you ask Mark Zuckerberg, how did you make it? He'll be like, it's a lot of passion and hard work and drive. It's none of those fucking things. You could really fucking suck. And I say this to you because one of the most important things I think in life isn't to make money and have wealth and fame and Lamborghinis and all that shit, but it's to become a self-realized person from the standpoint of you knowing yourself. There's a Latin saying, I think it's pronounced nothi sutan, which means know thyself. Very, it was very important to the Romans, to the Greeks, and a lot of these ancient civilizations. And you're thinking, well, why was this written above all these doorways and you know, in Alexandria and all these places. Well, the, the reason is once we know ourselves, once we know our strengths and our weaknesses, we have the ability to go beyond what our limitations are. Me, myself, I'm fucking brilliant at a very narrow band of things. I'm good at maybe two, maybe three things and everything else I am so fucking bad at absolutely suck. But I know that. So I know if I'm, you know, doing something like that's that's not part of my expertise, that I could hire somebody, give them some money, and have them handle that. I'm very good at management of people, not very good at a whole bunch of other stuff, and absolutely really fucking bad at a series of things, including crime. So I know those those, those are things that I know. So one of the things that I think probably would be very helpful to your listeners, and I hope that this doesn't offend you, but rather inspires you is know if what you're actually doing is good or if it sucks. And you need to have people around you who don't mind telling you the truth. And so people will say, well, how do I know if what they're saying is the truth or not? If everything that comes out of their mouth sounds like a fucking love song, or it sounds like they don't want to be confrontational because people can't handle confrontation. Oh my God. Oh my God. Confrontation. If, if everything out of their mouth sounds like something great and non-critical of you, they're probably bullshitting you because they don't feel like confronting you, dealing with you, hurting your feelings, being politically correct or any of that other stuff. Somebody that looks at whatever it is that you're doing and goes, dude, that's the worst fucking business idea ever. But maybe I like that part of it, but the rest of it is complete shit. You can do something with that. Have you heard of Andy Andrews? Does that name no. sound familiar to you? So he he talks about, he asks his audience, he's a public speaker and he sells a book, one book every second, I think is what he does. It's just incredible. Uh, just truly incredible, really wise man. But he shares a, a story when he presents and he says that he'll, he'll ask the audience, what, what is the ideal attributes of a, of a friend? What makes a great friend? And almost all of 
the audience's answer within the top three. One of them is that this, that my friend accepts me as who I am or accepts me for who I am. And then he says that that's ridiculous. Just like you're saying, it's, it's ridiculous that if you, if all people do are this just yes men around you, for example, then you're stepping into failure. That's, that's the only possibility of what's happening. So as we wrap up, Shaheen, I, w- I want to in- invite you to, you know, tell us where to go. How do we connect with you? If people are imp- interested in the Amazon course, how do they connect with you there? Where can we find your book? I mean, I know the answers to these questions, but go ahead and share with sure. everybody. And uh, yeah. Yeah, great question. So actually, wait, remind me again, the name of your, the official name of your show. Sage Mindset. Okay. So why don't we do this? I've got a course that teaches people how to sell on Amazon, create predictable revenue. It's everything you need to know from A to Z of how to sell on Amazon. It's normally 200 bucks. If you put in the name of the show, let's just put in Sage. If you put in Sage and I'm going to give you guys a URL, I'll give it to you for free. Absolutely zero. So you don't need to spend any money starting an Amazon business. I don't need to take your money. I just want you to be empowered to create a business that's going to bring you that recurring revenue where you don't have to sell your hours. And the URL for that is going to be uh, www.fbasellercourse.com or go to shaheenshayan.com. That's www.shaheenshayan.com. Now, if you are interested in my story, or my book, Billion, which should be out by the time you're listening to this podcast, Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult. You can get that on Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, Audible, wherever books and podcasts are found. I also do a weekly show with my co-host, Bart Baggett, called Hack and Grow Rich, where we talk about all the stuff, Kyle, about hacking mindsets. We've got great guests on like Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari, Chris Voss, who wrote the introduction to my book, The FBI Negotiator. Cool. We've got Jay Samet, uh, Future Proof You, uh, Keith Ferrazzi, Never Dine Alone, Never Eat Alone, I think, uh, Dr. Michael Bruce, The Sleep Doctor. So we've got all these great guys on, and we invite you guys to subscribe, like, listen to the show. And, and really, there's never been a better time to start an Amazon business. So if, you, if you're looking to do that, either learn from me, learn from someone, but get going with that foundational building. If I've empowered even just one person from listening to this show, it's been time well spent. Yeah. Well, I, I'm sure you have. I know you've definitely influenced me and encouraged me. So thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, Kyle. Thanks for having me on, bud.